Hello and welcome back to the South London Press Football Pod, episode three now. We're well and truly cooking on gas. We're looking to do these around once a week, but if we do get any breaking news, i.e. Millwall appointing a manager in the imminent future, then we'll look to do just a short pod just to give you our reaction on that. But um, yeah, we hope you are enjoying the podcast and uh, yeah, they seem to be going down well. Um, I'm once again joined by the South London Press sports editor, Richard Corley. Rich, how are you? I'm very good, Ed. We um, we haven't got a guest this week. It's uh, because of Palace's travel arrangements for the Burnley game and the storm uh, that's uh, obviously caused a bit of carnage. It's um, brought the press conference forward. So we're, we're getting the pod in, but we haven't got any dulcet tones of anybody else. So just just you and me on this one. Yeah, lone cowboys, basically. If you're uh, if you're going for that via the intro music. Absolutely. And we're going to start with Palace. So maybe I'm going to kind of flip it around. We are going to talk, obviously, Millwall, Charlton, Wimbledon as well. Uh, But the reason we're going to start with Palace is that you were over at Roy Hodgson's pre-match press conference. And obviously Mm. there was some pretty, uh, uh, very encouraging and exciting news potentially on on Eberetze Eze. What, What can you tell us about that, Ed? Definitely encouraging and exciting. Roy Hodgson confirmed today that He's optimistic that the club will be able to announce soon mm. Everett contract extension, which uh, which is massive, really. If you're looking at it in the summer and you saw that Michael Olise and Everett Chiesa are both being linked to, to massive football clubs in Chelsea and Manchester City, respectively, uh, you probably thought it was pretty pretty ludicrous that they might be both committing their long-term futures to Crystal Palace. Um I mean, Eze's been simply sensational under, under Roy Hodgson. You really saw in the final... 10 games of last season where he scored six goals and became an England international that that Rory really knows how to get the best out of him. And along with contract extensions to Jordan Ayew and Sam Johnson this week, it looks like that the 25-year-old Greenwich-born attacker will be committing his his future to the club. So it's uh, it's massive news for Palace. Um, I, think, I think the main sticking point at the moment is probably going to be the release clause that, that he wants included in it. Uh, Elise signed the same deal, same sort of deal where he has a release clause in his. And uh, if you're looking at the Brighton model and the way of selling players on for a profit, making sure that they always have that ability to go to the next step and you're not tying them down on massive long-term deals, then it it works out best for everyone included. Um, I think the main thing probably for Eze is that he, he has become an England international at Crystal Palace. I think he can see that clear pathway where he can be involved in Gareth Southgate's squad for the upcoming Euros while still being in South London. So, you know, fending off Manchester City to 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 nail down really one of your best main creative players, it's uh, it's huge news for Palace and Roy Hodgson looked absolutely delighted when he was saying it. He hasn't had too much good news in terms of injuries and, and players being out this season. So, yeah, it's a, it's a huge boost and and he's returning from the hamstring injury that he suffered after the 1-0 win against Manchester United in, in late September. So in terms of a press conference with Roy Hodgson, it's probably one of the more positive ones we've had this season. Yeah, I think with the intricacies of these player contracts, of course, the thing that doesn't always get aired publicly is the release clauses, isn't it? And um, so many of these players do have them in there. Of course, as long as it's at the right level, it doesn't it doesn't matter too much. I mean... If a player wants to go, you know, they can quite often agitate anyway. So sometimes having that very clear price point in there, it, it just depends on if a club comes. Do you still think that if there was a, a release clause in there that, that Eberetche ASA will still attract interest like in the, the short to medium term or, or not? Uh, it's a difficult one because if he's happy at, at being at Palace and sees a clear sort of ambition to push the club forward... Okay, the the release clause might be 60, 70, 80 million, something like that. But he's still making it into the England squad every season and being one of the the main creative forces and drivers in a Premier League team uh, for Crystal Palace. Then 
I don't know. He's, he's sort of reaching that age where it was a bit like Wilf, where every year he kind of goes on and on. You think maybe that move might get a little bit tougher. He's 25, which is, of course, no means sort of old in the game. But if he gets to 28 and he's still at the club, then you think, OK, well, maybe it's time to offer him a new deal. And he gets to 30, I'll give him another year and another year. And then you're looking at the same sort of Wilf territory. So to get him to, to commit his future to the football club, his current deal expires in 2025, so it's it's been a priority they've been looking at. So to get him to to tie down would be would be huge news. And uh, Roy Hodgson seemed pretty convinced it was it was close. Yeah, they've done a very good job, Palace, haven't they? By and large, of keeping their best players, and they've had some players that have really been coveted by other clubs. I mean, we, you touched on Wilf there, but you effectively have probably his best years, his most injury-free years as well. And apart from Man Wan Bissaka. Um, and obviously that money was sort of invested into, into mm. key areas of the club. Palace have been pretty good at holding on to their kind of crown jewels and their sort of prize assets. Yeah, yeah, they definitely have. I think it's been sort of a, the main thing of of the Premier League era is that every time we get a good player, it's, they seem to stay. The only one I'm kind of really thinking of was Yannick Velassi when he went to Everton. And of course, doesn't always look like the grass is greener when you leave, even when Wilf was trying to agitate for a move to Everton in I believe it was 2019 off the top of my head. If you look at where Everton are now as a football club, you could argue that Palace are perhaps more stable. I mean, then their Premier League status looks a lot more secure than Everton does this season. So it, it seems like a good place to play your football, Palace. I'm just That's just from what I hear, what you talk to people in and around the, the club. I mean, if you're, if you're starring week in, week out in the Premier League and making it into your respective international squad, then it's... Uh, yeah, it's clearly it's clearly a good place to play your football. Yeah, it's interesting going back to Yannick Velasti. I mean, obviously, I was covering Palace much more then, and it was almost like he was in the perfect place at Palace because the fans absolutely appreciated him. The system worked so well for him; it just felt a perfect mm. fit. And then once you move for big money, like like he did to Everton, it's a complete change. All the goodwill and what you've achieved, it's a reset. And from there, having come in on a bigger price tag it was always going to be hard, I think, for him to kind of maybe scale those heights because the supporters are saying, OK, we spent a load of money on you. What are you going to do? Whereas, mm. obviously, when he came into Palace, he came in for next to no money. It was a great deal done when Dougie Friedman was manager. And, obviously, his contribution to the club meant he got a fantastic reception from the fans and they loved him. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that when you talk about grass not always being greener, it can be difficult for, for players when they move on. But yeah, really good news about, I, about Eberreche anyway. I was going to say, I think as well, if you look at Mateus Nunes, who obviously went to, to Manchester City this summer from Wolves, he hasn't quite caught the same headlines that he did while he was at Molyneux because he's playing a, a smaller role in a team full of superstars, whereas Eze is going to be grabbing the headlines and, and being that sort of main creative player in a in a very good Premier League team week in week out, and he's going to catch more eyes. People are going to be impressed uh, impressed by his performances more because he's doing it in a okay in a team that isn't as good as, as Manchester City's. So yeah, he's almost like the poster boy for a South London club and being a South Londoner from around the area. You know, he spoke of when he first joined the club of how much he admired Wilfred Zaha and Yannick Bellassi growing up. So it seems like a perfect fit for everyone, and uh, hopefully the club can sort out that potential release clause and uh, and he can commit his future. Now, Roy as well today, um, there was at least one post-match comment after the Spurs game, which created a bit of a stir, got some traction. I think <laughs> you might have actually been uh, mentioned by Fabrizio Romano as well uh, for your post-match uh, tweet that you did, which was Roy's comment about the younger players that sort yeah. of went down like, well, I don't quite know what the analogy is, but um, yeah, it didn't it didn't go down well. But I think he's kind of he's kind of addressed that today, hasn't he? He has, yeah. He revealed that he uh, that he apologised to the players, and he, it, it was it's strange. Someone said to before the press conference, oh, he's definitely going to double down on 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 the comments that he made after Spurs. But I was pretty convinced that he was going to end up apologising or, or, or realising that maybe in the heat of the moment that. That wasn't the the correct thing to, to maybe say after the game. Um, I think maybe some in some part the, the quotes maybe got taken out of context when you look at them as in just that block. But you still can't really say that after a game about a two twenty one year olds and a nineteen year old. You have two Premier League starts between the three of them. The players apparently all accepted his apology and and everything's all all okay now. But I think he was more referring to the fact that 
there shouldn't be too much expectation put on on these guys. It's not like he's got Everett Chiesa and Michael Elise at his disposal. So when he is throwing on these youngsters, he doesn't actually expect to come back into the game. And I think that's what he was referring to more than saying that they didn't offer us anything. Um, but yeah, in terms of the apology, I think it's all been all been swept under the carpet now, and everyone can move on. Um, he, he, I mean, in the embargo section, he he compared Jezza and Ratsaki to being the he says he has the ability to be the next Wilfred Zaha. So it's um, he definitely has high hopes in these players and thinks that they can do something for us in the future, us being Crystal Palace. But um, for the here and now, you don't get the sense that, that Roy 100% trust these these three to go on and change the game. And, and to some extent, why should he? Because there's no experience there and everyone knows that Roy Hodgson's first port of call to get points in the Premier League is going to be calling upon his experienced players. Yeah, one of the experienced players is Jordan Ayew. And again, that was mentioned about him penning a new deal. It's always mm. difficult sometimes to know exactly when these deals get done because I can still remember Damien Delaney signed a deal at Palace years ago. And it was like a running joke that we'd speak to him after games in the mix zone. And he'd say, you know, you'd say, when's it going to be announced? And he'd walk off waving his hand going, ask the club, ask the club. <laughs> so like, uh, I mean, as to when it happened, I, I don't know if you know anything on that. It's fine if you don't. But in terms of the actual extension, again, he's been a key player, hasn't he? He's played a lot of minutes, a lot of games for Palace. He's been a good signing. He has, yeah. I saw someone saying that in terms of, you know, what he brings to us as a team, the most important thing is that he's available to play every week. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's like over 30 games in the pl- in the past four seasons that he's managed to play for a football club, for the football club, which is, you know, if, if you're going to be there, the first thing you need to do is, is be fit and ready. And, and Jordan I does that every season. I think it was only a million quid that they really spent on him to get him from Swansea. So pound for pound, along with Joe Ward, the best one of the best signings in terms of the Steve Parrish era at Crystal Palace. And Roy Hodgson agreed with that today. He mentioned that himself off his own back. He, he, Jordan Ayew is the type of player that Roy Hodgson absolutely loves. Does his defensive due diligence incredibly well. Um, you really noticed, against, especially against Newcastle, when Jordan Ayew got switched to the other flank to help support Tyreek Mitchell, that really shored up the defence. Okay, you're 4-0 down, but it's uh, it just shows what he brings to the team. And um, you know, Roy was saying after that Jordan I is never going to be the one who catches the praise or uh, it's always going to be someone like Everett Chiesa or, or Michael Elise because they bring the goals and the assists. But it's just as important what someone like Jordan I brings to the team. Um, it's interesting. I was also thinking about the fact that there were those links to Saudi Arabia at some point over the summer and that they were interested in him. So I'm sure... Uh, just to fend off any sort of potential interest, I'm sure the club were just uh, covering their own backs. And uh, yeah, he's a great squad addition. Yeah, I think it's funny. When that came out, I contacted someone and uh, one of the messages that came back was, I think he's looking for a new deal. So um, <laughs> I don't think it's probably, it is the kind of games that go on in the media that yeah. sometimes people don't, on the outside, don't always quite get that certain things are planted. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do understand that stuff's planted with a very specific goal. But anyway, it's got done in the end, which is good news. What about um, what about team news um, ahead of the Burnley game? As you said, Palace have had plenty of injuries and selection headaches that Roy Hodgson's had to contest with. But what about for, for the game at Turf Moor? Uh, much more positive news in, in that respect in terms of injuries. Hodgson confirmed in his embargo section, which goes out at 10.30 tonight, that Everett Chiesa will be available uh, and be in the matchday squad. We obviously ran the story yesterday that that both he and Michael Elise had been involved in first-team training this week. Hodgson confirmed that today. Uh, Elise is not as close as Eze in terms of he's only allowed to take part in, in bits of the first-team training. Eze has been in full training. Uh, and in terms of what that will bring to the team, it's, it's massive. Um Palace, Palace haven't, have only scored one in there. Uh, I think it was after the Newcastle game, it was one in six, and now it's two in seven after the after the game against Spurs. So it just shows without Eze, who's been missing for a large chunk of that, um, how important he is to the team. He hasn't necessarily got the goals and the assists that he'd probably like this year. Uh, just the one goal against... Uh, under against Wolves under his belt but uh, in terms of what he brings to the team and allowing the others to flourish especially someone like Odson Edward who was scoring goals kind of fun at the start of the season um, yeah it's, it's immeasurable so 
be a huge boost. Another huge boost is that the only fit and recognised uh, first team left back Tyreek Mitchell has also been training all week after coming off with a, a slight injury against Spurs. So uh, he's available as well. So in terms of team selection and, and team news, it's looking a lot more positive for Roy Hodgson these days. And just finally on Palace, um, Nathaniel Klein, I think Ryan's saying 200 Palace appearances. I can still remember watching him when he came through, actually, which shows how long I've been at the paper. Um, <laughs> but um, 200 Palace games. I, I guess with him and Joe Ward, those fullback positions, they've been great servants to the club. And obviously Nathaniel Klein's gone away and played for some other clubs in the Premier League and, 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 and had success. But... I guess the fullback areas, how much is that maybe a, a short-term fix that Palace are going to need at some stage, do you think, Ed? Uh, something they're going to need to address pretty pretty quickly. Um, obviously gave both Ward and Klein new deals at, at the end of last season. Um, but in terms of where the deficiencies are, are in the squad, it's obviously right back and, and the lack of first team left back cover, which are the real problems. Um Joel Ward's been a wonderful servant, given so many memories to the football club, but he just lacks that ability to go forward. And I think if you're looking at pushing into the top half of the Premier League, you see the way that like, someone like Matty Cash gets forward for Aston Villa or Estepinian at Brighton on the left-hand side. Having that real mobile attacking fullback is is key. And you even saw when Aaron Bissaka could get forward when he came through, that that was huge for the football club, just with his pace, not with his crossing and goal scoring ability but that added pace that he had and to get back and produce the tackle it was it was huge so it's something that they're going to need to address I don't think it's going to be a priority heading into January um, I think there's other areas of the squad especially in the wide positions which need more drastic attention but in the summer when you're looking at it Crystal Palace will need to need to find a new right back to be the first choice starter so the big story that we've really been covering in the in the past few weeks, especially since we started the pod, is Millwall's search for a manager after Gary Rowett left the football club. Uh, lots of people asking you, Rich, in the when you tweeted out earlier, asking for questions, people want to know what's going on. Um, obviously, lots of noise this week that they're narrowing down their search. What 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 can you give us today? A uh, little bit more detail, yeah, but certainly that's not so much of a problem to do that. It's reaching, I think the process is kind of coming to an end. It's coming to a climax. I think that people will talk about time spans, and I'm always a bit wary of that because I think as soon as you put a time on it, these things invariably slip. But I think what I would say is that I would expect Millwall to have their new manager in place next week. Um, could be early in the week, could be middle of the week, but I think next week it will be done. I think Adam Barrett will still take the team um, on Saturday um, against Southampton. They're at home to Southampton. But aside from that, they're now getting down to the nitty gritty of who they're going to get. They obviously had a shortlist last week. That was cut quite a bit this week. And there's a few people, there's, there's at least a couple now that we can rule out. Uh, one of those, which um, I mentioned on social media that was no longer in the running, was John Eustace. Um, I can probably give a bit more detail on that. I mean, when Gary Rowett stepped down, um, John Eustace was um, was away on a family holiday. And um, once he came back, the club spoke to him. And I think the talks were, were all very good. I don't think there was anything but positive stuff going on there. But it sounded as if John Eustace uh, didn't want the family reasons and just being settled wasn't particularly keen to stay away from his Midlands base. Now, um, at the moment, we know that, um, well, I'd, I'd put something out on social media, which was played down by one of the Bristol City journalists uh, about Bristol City. Um, John Eustace has also been mentioned with Derby. Uh, John Eustace definitely, I think, is on the radar of Bristol City. Whether I was premature in saying it looked like he was going to get it, time will tell, I guess. But... I think one of the things that Millwall were quite conscious of is that with Gary Rowett, you know, his family home was back, uh, back, back, back up, back up in the Midlands area, uh, Derbyshire way, and so he was kind of travelling back and forth. So I mean, he wasn't travelling back and forth every day, but you know, when they had a day off, he would drive back after a game. And so once you've done that for a little period of time, it can become quite challenging. So I think Millwall were kind of thinking if we push this. If we get John Eustace and he's already said that he's based fairly happy where he is, I think it could have potentially made it a bit more of a problem. So that's what I'd say on John Eustace. In terms of Kevin Muscat, we could also say that he is no longer 
um, part of the sort of the, the process as well. Now, again, for a bit more detail on that, the club spoke to him uh, before they appointed Gary Rowett uh, so that he was someone that they spoke to then. Uh, he's someone they spoke to again this time around. And there's no disputing that he has done a, a very, very impressive job at Yokohama. And, um, but I think, I think for Millwall, I think it was always seen that he was a bit of an outsider in those, in the, you know, in their kind of search because he has done so, so, so well out there. And obviously, we know that he was very, very close. I mean, I know people that know what was happening at Rangers. He was so close to getting the Rangers job. So it remains to be seen whether Kevin Muscat might have a, a very big move ahead of him or a decent move ahead of him um, that maybe, without being disrespectful to Millwall, is is a bigger calibre of club. That, that will perhaps come a bit clearer as we go along. But um, I, I think sort of, he was withdrawn from the process. And so we know that he's not in it. In terms of the players, I think most of them probably are out there now. Uh, Nathan Jones, uh, we've got Joe Edwards, uh, Michael Beale, and I think Adam Barrett is also under consideration. Um, if you're going to talk about who is the favourite, I, I just think from a gut viewpoint I think Nathan Jones has got a very good chance at this you know he did he did very well at Luton Town sort of club that were always kind of talked about even when Gary Rout was manager he said there's a lot of similarities between us and you know Millwall and Luton you know we're both not the biggest spenders in the division we need to play with a different kind of approach than, than just being able to just totally throw money at it like the top clubs like Leicester would do as an example or a Leeds so I think the big point to make here is that Nathan Jones looks very, very credible to me as an option, albeit it worked out very badly at Southampton in the Premier League. It didn't work out at Stoke. Uh, but, you know, you look at his situation, he's definitely a live contender. The, the sort of thing that I touched on on the first pod was about Millwall potentially looking at a younger, up-and-coming, highly-rated coach. And so this is where we get to with the situation with Joe Edwards. He's been at Chelsea prior to... He's now in under 20 head coach. He spent two decades uh, in Chelsea's academy before moving on to the senior staff with Frank Lampard. And then he stayed with the senior staff uh, when Thomas Tuchel took over. And, of course, Chelsea won the Champions League. So, seen as a real bright thinker and innovator. But I've got to be honest with you. I could sit here and make out I know absolutely loads about Joe Edwards. I don't. Of course, Millwall, with the kind of depth of the uh, profiling they're doing on people and everything else, will know far more. So that's what I'd say on those couple. Michael Beale uh, obviously uh, did a good job at QPR um, and then went to, decided to leave, which was very unpopular with the QPR fans, I think, after talking about how much he loved the club. Um didn't last a terrific amount of time at Rangers, but obviously I think is keen to get back in. So he's the other one that we've mentioned. And Adam Barrett, who's been in caretaker charge. I think the thing you'd say with Adam is that um, they were very, very close, a stoppage time goal away from winning at Watford. Um, I, I think if the club did go down the path of giving it to Adam Barrett, I think the fans would perhaps be a little bit... Um, I don't see if they would take it brilliantly, uh, and that's that's a difficulty. It's how it's how a club wants to approach it, and whether they feel they're too, you know, they're going to worry about that. I think Millwall will try and do the process the right way, and they'll try and get the right person through the door. Um, just before I let you come back in on the question, it was interesting that when Nathan Jones's name came out in particular, there was quite a bit of uproar about it, and it made me think of when Ben Garner was appointed or he got the job at uh, at Charlton. Um, the fans were going nuts about the fact that Ben Garner wasn't good enough. Why were we going for him? And it's amazing how things kind of settled down on social media because I remember that two or three days after that, fans were saying, "Why? when is Ben Garner being announced? And then it went a bit longer. And you could just see that almost on social media, you see this kind of reaction that Canton wants to be quite negative. And then when people think about it, they can see a few more of the pros of announcing, say, a Nathan Jones, a Michael Beale, a Joe Edwards. So that's what I'd say on the process. It is getting closer and I think it will get resolved uh, pretty soon. 
in terms of Nathan Jones, do you think the football club would be having a look at why it worked out so well for him at Luton and maybe perhaps at Stoke and Southampton it didn't necessarily go the way it had done? You obviously mentioned the budgets and just the way Luton were as a football club probably matched Jones's style of management and, and his aura. Maybe Millwall could be a perfect fit in that respect as well. Yeah, I think from some of the stuff I've heard about Nathan Jones, and I don't, I don't know him. Obviously, he did. He was at Charlton uh, as uh, uh, the under sort of twenty one development phase coach. Or some the, the titles are so convoluted that some of these academies have. It's it's crazy. But anyway, he was there, and I remember that under twenty one team did so so well, and the players absolutely loved playing for him. Now they were young players, so it's a bit different if you go into a Premier League football club like Southampton. And the problem a lot of times, I think, with Premier League clubs, and maybe even Eric Ten Hag's having it now, is that if you try and impose your will on people, quite often players will just think, I'm not having that. And I'm not saying they did that with Nathan Jones at Southampton, but what I've been told about Nathan Jones is he is an incredibly intense character. He is someone that is kind of like, he's got a way of doing it and you've got to be an absolute convert and be all in on it. And I just wonder sometimes at some clubs whether that does totally happen. Um, and some clubs, it's just not the right fit. I mean, Nathan Jones, if you look at him, um, he'd um, he'd obviously got Luton out of League Two. They won automatic promotion. Uh, they lost in the League One playoff semis. I think he still won the League One Manager of the Year that year because of the job he'd done. And then after that, he went to Stoke. It didn't work out. Um, so I think, I, I don't know, uh, Adam Sells last week on the pod sort of threw me a bit by saying, who would you who would you think of? And I, I hadn't really thought the thing through particularly. But I must admit, and I think I said it last week, whenever I watched his Luton sides uh, and Norman Davis against Millwall, I think I could see Millwall fans quite liking the way they play. You know, they are very high intensity off the ball as much as they are on it. And so I think I think there are things there that maybe could make it work. Um, I mean, every manager's a leap of faith. So, yeah, so it'd be interesting to see. Uh, in terms of this weekend's Southampton, uh, I think you put out a bit today, a little bit of positive injury news perhaps for, for Adam Barrett and, and what could maybe be his final game in charge. Yeah, I'm not sure whether um, they'll, they'll they'll start, but I think if Sean Hutchinson and Ryan Leonard manage to come through the next couple of uh, the next couple of training sessions, um, then they will be back in the squad. Um, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that Millwall will change what they've got defensively um, because Wes Harding obviously is a goal machine now and <laughs> going to finish at the top of the top of the championship scoring charts. So I don't think they'll really mess with that too much. Uh, but I mean, having them both back would be great. I mean, when, when Sean Hutchison's fit, he's a really, really good centre-half at the level. And Ryan Leonard can play. He's like your sort of Swiss army knife. You can do two or three different roles. So I think that's good for them. Duncan Watmore possibly back in training by the sounds of things at the start of next week. I, I mean, I, I, Joe Bryan is still going to be... He's, he's still uh, sidelined at the moment. I think he's going to be yeah. about... A Someone's asked a question, I think. He's going to yes, be around yeah. a month. He's going to be around a month, I think, before he's back. Matthias um, mm. Sarkic, obviously, still going to be a little way away as well. But apart from that, they've got some players back. And, uh, you know, Southampton are going really well under Russell Martin now. He was under pressure a bit before. And... Um, now, all of a sudden, they're up to fourth and they're on a decent unbeaten run. Best possession stats in the league. You always expect that with the Russell Martin side. But, yeah, he's got he's got a few more options. Adam Barrett said he was just pleased to have some senior options in the side to, to throw into the mix as well. You mentioned goal machine Wes Harding there. You went down to the training ground this week to, to speak to him and to Casper Denor. Um, what did they What did they tell you this week when you when you went down there? Well, Wes Harding, we spoke about his Cristiano Ronaldo goal celebration. The is it Sue or I don't know how you pronounce yeah, it. I the, believe the so, jump, Rich. Yeah. Jump, the jump. I'm gonna yeah. do it. I'm gonna do it in a minute. But um, <laughs> um but yeah, uh so I mean I don't want to spoil what's in the paper, you can read it, but Wes has sort of said that he did it at Rotherham for his goal last season. It, I think he'd already settled on doing it with sort of uh, players uh, if he got a goal and he's just carried it on. Uh, he said he doesn't score many, but he doesn't. I think he's played 140 games for Rotherham 
and his only career goals were at Rotherham too. And he's got two in like, I've not got the stats in front of me, but probably less than double digit appearances for Millwall. So he's really informed. I mean, the interesting thing is Millwall have been historically so good at set pieces and maybe in recent times that hasn't been, they haven't been so effective from them, but both of their goals at Watford came from set pieces. Lovely ball in by George Stavell for, for Wes's goal. And the other one is a sort of second phase, effectively, because the ball comes in uh, from Casper Denore and it's flicked on by Brad, Tom Bradshaw and then Zian Fleming sticks it away. So, uh, yeah, Wes was Wes was really, really good value um, in terms of the interview, and that's in the paper. And Casper Denore, who I now know how to pronounce his name because... I think we might be having a segment where we asked, which we'll, we'll have on here, which will be playing fairly in a little bit. But um, there was a few Q&As. We thought we'd mix it up and get supporters to ask some questions. And one was about the pronunciation of his name, so uh, surname. So we've got that on there. He's answered a few other questions as well, including some fairly impressive ex-teammates that are quite glitzy now and in the Premier League. But we'll, 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 you'll be able to hear that in a bit. But... Uh, yeah, he's he's loving it at Millwall, and um, he's obviously got a nickname as well. I mean, Zian Fleming is the Bermondsey Bird Camp, and Casper um, uh, is known by some fans as the uh, Deptford De Bruyne. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff, and he has some interesting stuff to say on social media, which uh, he doesn't do his own social media, and he explained why. So, uh, yeah, check it out on the website or in the paper, and. Uh, yeah, he's done really well. He's been class in midfield. I like him a lot. Good signing. Um, doesn't mind taking the ball under pressure. And he talked about that in the piece with me. The, the players, he says, have got to know that you can work it to him in areas where maybe you wouldn't think a player would want it. He's he's very good on the ball and, and, and been a really, really good addition to the squad. The alliteration with the uh, the local sort of areas and then the, the players' names as well is quite uh, quite good. So if you look at Deptford, yeah. Deptford and all, but the Southwark, he's uh, someone who begins with S's. Yeah, we need, think, yeah. We, we need to think of some. Really, we're, we're we're lagging a bit here because normally it's the papers that come up with these these yeah. these, mon- <laughs> these monitors that everyone uses, and like. We're not we're not really coming up with them. They're they're already coming out of the woodwork. So, um, <laughs> but no. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's as I say, Millwall. If they can get a win at the weekend, but it's going to be difficult. Um, again, I haven't got their record in front of me. I wish I'd kept my my work computer on. I'm doing this on my laptop. But I mean, Millwall's record, I think, against Southampton is they've not played each other loads over the years. But I mean, I think off the top of my head, it's like late seventies was the last time Millwall won a a game of any kind against them. Um, someone will probably pick up on that and say it's wrong. But I think that's what I looked at when I was trawling through soccer base um, and, and trying to see the most recent victory. So, yeah. Be good, be, if it is Adam Barrett's last game in caretaker charge, it'd be absolutely lovely if he could sign off with a, sign off with a victory because he, you know, he was put into a difficult position. They've had so many games thick and fast since yeah. Adam's come in. This is like, the first full week of training he's had to really kind of set things up. We're not going to jump into that that quick Q and A with with Casper that Rich was talking about. So, and after that, we're going to uh, jump into questions. Can you pronounce your surname? Casper. Uh, and your surname is? Ah, my surname Denora. Denora. Okay. Casper okay. Denora. Okay. Yep. Someone's so not, asked. So not Denora. <laughs> yeah. So, but, so, uh, okay. That that. That answers that one. Another one that a fan asked is if you could bring any former teammate to the den to play alongside playing in the team, who would it be? From any from any of the clubs you've played at, I suppose, at any age. Is there anyone that comes to mind that you would? Uh, there are a few. Um, I played with Tomiyasu from Arsenal. Okay. I played with Rosar from Arsenal. Um, played with Ando from Liverpool. So, yeah, there are a few, but mm, I would take Trossard. Um, also, um, asked uh, one of the other questions the fans asked was, who was your idol growing up? Um, I'm like a Manchester United fan. Okay. So, uh, when I was younger. Um, and, like, yeah, it was like the team with Ronaldo and Rooney, so, like, them two were, like, a little bit of my idols, Rooney, Ronaldo. If you had to pick one... Who would it be, or is it difficult to split them? 
Ronaldo, yeah. Okay, yeah. Good one. Yeah, definitely. In terms of another one, a bit different. Mayonnaise on chips, good or bad? Um, I don't really like mayonnaise on my chips. Okay. Um, I would like normally take yuppie sauce. It's something from Belgium. Okay, so, yuppie sauce. Yuppie sauce. Okay. So I don't think they know it here. No, okay. I would take, I would take something else here. Yeah. What if you had? Uh, this is a different question that I'll add in as well. But if you had a cheat food, if you're allowed to have a, a cheat day in terms yeah. of what you would eat, what would be your favourite food uh, to have that maybe you Bel- wouldn't normally have? Belgian fries with, like, like it's like uh, snacks. That um, you, yeah. You, I think yeah. I spoke to some guys here. They don't know it here. Okay. It's like from. Uh, yeah. How do you say? It? You deep fry it. The snacks. Okay. With the fries. Okay. Together, so it's very famous in Belgium. Um, you find like it's called a friture. Okay. Um, so, um, you find like a friture in every small village. They okay. for sure have a friture because it's like magic in Belgium. Okay. So, so you have can't it. have that too often now, no, I'm guessing, as a player. When I was in Belgium, I would have it. Yeah, maybe every week, one time as my like cheat meal. Yeah. After a game or the day after a game. But here I have to wait always a few weeks. Okay. I can have one. <laughs> <laughs> Last one that I'm going to do from the fans was someone had asked, what have you done to adapt your game from maybe the way you played when you were out in, out in Belgium to here in England? Is there anything um, you've adapted? I tried still to be like myself and still like try to play the way I want to play. Hmm. Um, but obviously the league is a little bit more physical. And so, I mean, in terms of like the duels and just a little bit harder in duels than I would be in Belgium, I think. So that's a little bit like in a little bit of yeah, adapting to my game. Welcome back to part three of the South London Press Football Pods. We're now going to answer some of the questions that you sent in this week. Rich put out a tweet earlier and uh, a few more replies this week, which is always good to see. If you have anything over the course of the week which you think we need to touch on, then please just drop us a DM or an email and we'd be more than happy to talk about it. Um, First of all, Rich, we're going to jump into this question from Robo Triple Five, who asks who's in charge of the managerial recruitment and leading the interview process. Well, I think there's a few different people involved on it. Um, obviously, you're going to have um, uh, Alex Aldridge, Steve Kavanagh, uh, James Bevelson. Uh, you know, they're going to be the, the notable, I suppose, notable names you'd add into it. Um, as to who makes the final call, um, I mean, I haven't checked this, but I'm guessing as owner. Uh, the owner will have the, the the final say on things, but you know you have got people that are experienced in the process, and um, so there's that, that's what I'd say on that. There's those are the kind of people that are kind of in the process, and there will be other people I'm sure that are, that are, are on the on it as well. But they're the three main ones. I think it's probably important to say because of the stage of the season, there was probably no rush to to go out and just hire any sort of manager. There was a proper due diligence sort of process that Millwall have taken to, to get to these sort of final few candidates that they're, they're narrowing their search down to. Yeah, definitely. And I think I, th- I think it's going to work out roughly being about the same time scale as it took to appoint Gary Rowett. I think, um, again, I'm kind of doing this off sort of memory, which probably isn't good with me, but I think it was about 18 days for um, um, uh, Gary Rowett to get the job. Um, we're probably, if it's, next week not going to be far away from a similar sort of time scale for this one and um you know so i think yeah i don't think there's anything untoward on that as i say, there's people that have been here um for a decent long period of time steve cabin is very very experienced chief exec you've got alex aldridge as i said who's director of football operations and recruitment he's got a very big role as well obviously the arch is right across the top of the club so you've got good people that kind of understand it um, and understand the football club and what, what's kind of required because you've got to try and get a manager that's a good fit. And um, I mean, whether, like I said before, and I think a separate pod, you know, Gary Rowett was just shy of four years in charge. I'm, I'm not for one second suggesting that the same kind of longevity continues to just keep happening because mm. it's just not, it's not necessarily realistic of what a football club how a football club operates. And the flip side of that is you, sometimes change is good. You know, like uh, there's plenty of clubs you could look at that have had success. I'm not saying sort of Watford levels of kind of managerial or head coach upheaval, but 
yeah, so anyway, the process, you know, the process I'm sure will kind of move along and uh, and you've got the right people there. So that's that's kind of the answer. Uh, James Bellison is obviously going to have a say. He's not just going to be told, right, this is who we're going for. And he's going to have yeah. his own input and own thoughts on it. Uh, next question is from Ricky Spanish. Uh, I don't believe that's your real name. I think it's a re- reference to American Dad, but um, he wants to know. He wants you to rank the last five Millwall managers uh, and based on win percentage and style. We'd love to know who you who you put in there, Rich. Yeah, well, what I should have just done is put the win percentage up, and then I would know if I just did win percentage. <laughs> I guess I guess it means in terms of kind of success. Now, yeah. I've got to be honest. I've only really covered. Um, Toby Porter, my predecessor, who was covering Millwall, um, he would probably be able to answer the, the, the sort of further back. But because of the fact that there has been quite a lot of stability, I've only worked under two managers, which is Gary Rowett and Neil Harris. I think it's difficult to separate the two of them in terms of success. I mean, Neil, Neil um, obviously took over when the club you know, we're basically needing a rebuild after he was already in the building, but like they'd been relegated. He had to rebuild the squad. Uh, they got back up uh, out of via the playoffs. And then some of the players that he signed, if you just run through it, I mean, you know, such a success story of players that are still at the club, people like Sean Hutchinson, like Jay Cooper, Bart Bielkowski, you know, you had Jed Wallace, you know, the list just goes on and on of players that he brought to the club and that were successful. So you've got to look at him as being a really successful manager. And likewise with Gary Rowett, the fact that the team kind of kicked on from there, was never in relegation trouble, was kind of looking to try and make that final push. So I think it's difficult to separate the two of them that much. I probably would have to say that Neil's Neil's achievement was maybe just about edges it, but I mean, I'm open to, I'm open to persuasion on that. In terms of other managers, I, I certainly think you couldn't see an Ian Holloway's spell as anywhere near as successful as that. And um, in terms of uh, most unpopular appointments, the Steve Lomas one with his connections to a club in East London, uh, yeah, is is probably one again that means that uh, he probably finishes bottom of the pile in terms of recent years, but. As I say, made a little bit trickier by the fact that um, I've only I've only worked under and watched uh, two mm. permanent managers at Millwall. It's it's wild, really, when you think about it. The sort of longevity that the past couple of Millwall managers have had. I, I think I saw a stat uh, on social media this week that um, the Coventry manager um, is the only manager in the league in the league to manage the club for over two years, which is. It, which just shows, really, I think, the direction that football is these days. There's a lot of pressure on wins. Millwall have been quite lucky, I think, in terms of the longevity that the past two managers have had. And Mark Robbins might not be there too much longer because certainly some of the stuff I've heard suggests, I mean, it's no surprise. I'm not saying something that's completely out of, out, out of the blue, but um, no. the, the position they are in the table, um, I think that there is uh, some scrutiny on him at the moment as well. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's crazy when you look at the... I mean, Nigel Pearson was another one that was one of the longer-serving ones yeah. before he left left Bristol City. So um, it's not a job you get in in terms of. Um, I, I, I can't imagine being a, ma- a manager. I mean, for more, for more than one reason, but certainly the fact that you haven't got job security is um, is incredibly difficult. Hmm. Uh, next question is from Stevie Essex, who asks you, Rich. What did Charlton need to make that jump from League One outsiders to playoff contenders? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, they're not far away, is is my thought process at the moment. I, I do wonder whether um, defensively worries me a little bit. Um, you know, when you look at the Wigan game the other night... Uh, it always felt in the second half, even though they were 3-0 up, Charlton, that... Uh, if they conceded with like half an hour, even 25 minutes on the clock, you worry about whether they'd have the stability and the, you know, be able to kind of keep the opposition out. And obviously they then conceded two really late on. And then the last six minutes of stoppage time were a worry. So I do, I do think that's an area that potentially they're going to need to, they're going to need to look at in January. Um, But I think offensively, like we've said already, they've got, they've got plenty in their locker. Like, 
again the other night they were they caused Wigan no end of problems and uh the only slight negative is Panucho camera going off injured so there is that worry I think they probably need I don't know I've not heard this is where they're looking but if if Chooks and EK is out for a significant period rather than just a couple of months they need another option up there with Miles Lieburn as that kind of uh target man and, and main striker because Alfie May I think definitely plays better off of off of that kind of uh partnership so uh, but I don't think, like, if you look, I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would imagine if you look at the points return under Michael Appleton, um, they'd have back-to-back defeats before they before they they got the result at Wigan, the win at Wigan. But um, I don't think they're far away, and um, they, they obviously hadn't won an away game all season, and they hadn't won it a, a away game actually. I think since the back since the back end of April. So psychologically, I always remember with Millwall, they, they hadn't won away when Gary Rowett took charge and he just changed the formation, went to wing-backs. They started winning away and then they kept winning away. And, and sometimes it can be a mental thing. So Charlton's home form, we know, has been by and large pretty good. If their away form picks up, I, I, I think they've got, a, they've got a genuine shot at it. They've, yeah, they've got a bit of ground to make up, but they've got a genuine shot at it. We're going to go obviously into Charlton in, in the next se- segment of the pod. But I think, Rich, people might be interested to know what the situations are in terms of contracts with George Dobson, Corey Blackett-Taylor as well. Um, I think Appleton confirmed he probably, well, obviously he'd like to keep both, but is there anything you can say on, on where it is with those two? Yeah, I mean, that's it. I asked Michael Appleton on the, um, uh, he does a Zoom press conference before before matches and I asked him on Monday, what, if he knew any update, I mean, obviously it's Andy Scott's area. He's the technical director. He's in charge of contract negotiations, but you'd imagine a manager would know if um, something was close. Although in saying that, Michael Appleton's probably not going to come out and say, yeah, we've done the deals and we're going to be announcing them. But I don't think that's the situation. Uh, they have been offered contracts. Um, I guess it's, it's a tricky one to know whether anything's close. I've not heard anything's close on both of them. Uh, in terms of them actually getting agreed, and obviously Blackett Taylor um, scored again, the, scored the other night. He's a player in really, really good form, and um, I, I just don't know how easy it is to necessarily get someone on a new contract unless you're throwing a, a ton of money at them. Because I would assume maybe a player might think, well, let's just wait and see what happens nearer to January. We are now only a couple of months away from the transfer window opening, so. Um, yeah, I mean he's he's been he's been unbelievably consistent in terms of his minutes this season, Corey Blackett Taylor, and he's also been pretty consistent or very consistent in terms of his attacking returns. So um, yeah, I think no surprise that Michael Appleton wants to keep them both. They're they're key players. George Dobson at the moment is somehow steering clear of a fifth yellow card, um, which would um, rule him out of a game. He he made about two or three challenges in the first half of Wigan, I was sure he was going to get a caution for, but he but he didn't. So him and Alfie May, I mean, Alfie May's four booking so far have mostly been for descent and sort of, you know, things like that. And it goes to show since he's realised, since he's realised he's on four and he's going to get a booking, he's been absolutely like an absolute role model in terms of his behaviour with officials. So um, yeah, uh, but that's, that's where, that's where I think it's at with those two. I, I'm not aware that there's anything imminent on them, but they, there have been talks over them extending. We'll stay on Charleston, Rich. Um, I wanted to ask you about, about Louis Watson. I saw a lot of praise for him on social media after the game at Wigan. At Wigan. Obviously, people wanted him to come into the starting lineup after being left out. Uh, the game before against Bolton, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, how good was he on on Tuesday night and what did he bring to the team which, which earned him that praise? Yeah, he was good. I mean, I think... Um... I think fans have really liked his performances and I would say that, you know, you get a bit of a barometer after games of what the feeling is because you, you, you basically get sort of in your mentions, um, you'll, you'll see stuff saying, why did, why did Michael Appleton do this and why did he do that? And one of the big things that was being spoken about after the Bolton game was why uh, Scott Fraser came back into the side in place of Louis Watson. Now, uh, he got asked that by either myself or my my trusty sidekick Louis Mendes. I can't remember which of us asked it, but um, he got asked about it. I think it was Louis actually who asked him. And um, Michael Appleton said that it was sort of 
not tracking. I think effectively what he was saying was that Louis Watson's defensive side of his game um, needed a bit of work in terms of tracking runners off of him. So that was his answer. Um, Louis Watson came back into the side and in midweek, I thought again, he played really, really well. You know, he's, 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 he's very good getting forward. It was his cross which led to Alfie May's first goal, although the keeper initially saved it and it deflected back off of uh, back off of Alfie and over the line. But he also had the little touch on the box and then Alfie May still had quite a lot of work to do, but he angled his shot in. So effectively sort of involved in two of their goals the other night. Um, I mean, Scott Fraser is obviously a very experienced player, but um, it's an interesting conundrum for Michael Appleton because um, I think Louis Watson's performances make it difficult to keep him out of the team. But Scott Fraser has also been a key player for Charlton, um, but obviously had some injuries this season that have that have kept him out. But I think it'd be interesting to see what he does on Sunday because a few people were saying to me, "Oh, I think for the Cray Valley um, FA Cup game, he'll rest he'll rest people." But I don't know what you think. But as a manager, it must be a bit of a nightmare that game because you're playing a side that are step four in the football pyramid, and if you lose that game. It's not a good look, not a good no. look at all. And so I'm not so sure that he will. I mean, he's got a good squad to choose from, Michael Appleton, in terms of depth. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think I think he might end up going stronger because you, if you if you win easily or win, people expect it. And if anything else happens, you're going to get people moaning about it. So I, I don't know what you think as to how much that might be a factor in a, in a manager's team selection. I was going to say, I think it's very rare these days that you see sort of wholesale changes unless it's absolutely necessary. I was thinking about Palace's trip up to, to Old Trafford for the uh, for the EFL Cup, but saying that Newcastle made eight changes last night against Manchester United and, and swept them aside 3-0, but that, you know, it's chalk and cheese between the Premier League and, and League One. I think with, with Charlton, with Michael Appleton, this is just from an outsider looking in after the two defeats on the bounce, picking up that win against Wigan was obviously important. If you want to keep momentum, best way to go about it is absolutely steamrolling aside in the eighth tier of, of English football. Um, so I, I wouldn't expect him to make too many changes. The other thing I'd say is if you look at how strong his team was that he played in the trophy, um, again, he bought on when they were winning handily. He bought on Chuksanike, he bought on... Alfie May, he bought on Boban Tenich. So um, I, I can't see it. And But even if he did, like we said, there are players that give him depth. I mean, he's got Karoy Anderson's not been uh, able to make the, the bench in recent weeks. I don't think there's an injury as far, far as I'm aware. Um, Charlie Kirk got on the bench and got on at Wigan. And Ken Campbell um, hasn't really got many minutes from Wolves, which perhaps has been a bit of a surprise. Um, so... You know, when you look at people like that that aren't even getting minutes, he, he definitely has got options. And even if he did make a couple of changes, it should still be a really strong team. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one on Sunday because, I mean, Cray have done fantastically well. It's a lovely story that you know a team from Elton, four miles away from the Valley, is going to be heading over for a, what is effectively a derby. And it's, it's obviously live. It's on BBC as part of their live coverage. So... Um, great spotlight on Cray and Charlton as well, but um, it's going to be an interesting match. And there's obviously a certain Kyrell Lisby, who um, uh, the son of Kevin Lisby, the former Charlton striker, who also played for Cray Valley. And I believe, well, if we're plugging things, um, you spoke to him. You spoke to him this week, Ed, and uh, the stuff in the paper with Kyrell. I did, yeah, one hundred percent. He's uh, he's looking forward to it. He's he wants to be the uh, the next Lisby to get a goal at the Valley. Uh, his most important thing was, was making sure he has a good performance. But um, yeah, he, he says that they go to the the Valley on on Sunday with absolutely no fear whatsoever. Um, they've earned the right to to go there and play with freedom. They have the license to go and attack Charlton. So um, it's something he's relishing. I, I think in terms of of them going there, it's. Everyone loves a giant killing story, don't they? And the FA Cup seems to throw them off every season. So Michael Appleton and Charlton will certainly have to be on their toes to make sure that they're uh, they're not the the ones that people are sort of looking at, thinking, how do they do that on when the draw is made uh, what, Sunday, Monday evening, something like that will be done. So 
yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a, a potential banana skin. Uh, also in the paper this week, we've got mm. an interview, and it'll be on the website as well at some stage, mm. uh, interview with the Crane manager, Steve McKim. Again, he's got South London connections, uh, born in Tooting, raised in Collier's Wood, and he played for Dulwich. Um, he's a Chelsea fan, and when he was a player, um, he was saying that they were drawn, they had a second round replay, and they would have had Chelsea in the third round. And I think they lost to like a really late goal. Uh, so he missed out on playing against the team he supported. But um, again, he was sort of given a bit of insight into their setup. They normally train Tuesday and Thursdays, hour and a half each of those two nights. And that's the only training time they get with the players. Um, they were due to have a London Cup game against Ballon, I think, on Thursday night, so as we were recording it. Uh, but he was saying that basically he was going to keep all of his first teamers out of that because he couldn't afford any of them to get injured before they before they come over and play at the play at the Valley. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. I mean, Charlton, Charlton have had their upsets in the past um, and, and been on the end of them. So uh, I, I would have thought, uh, having watched Charlton this season and particularly the way they play at the Valley, it would be a, it would be a big, big result if they managed to pull this off. It would be exactly, it would be a giant killing because, I mean, look, you know, teams like Charlton are, some of the big, you know, they're one of the biggest ones you can pull out the hat in this round. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Cairo was mentioning, you know, as soon as, as soon as Charleston Athletic got pulled out of the, pulled out of the cup draw, his eyes were glued to the screen because they're one of the biggest clubs in the division. Obviously, the history with his dad, who will be supporting Cray Valley Paper Mills on Sunday. He won't be supporting Charleston Athletic probably for the first time in his footballing sort of watching career. So, um, yeah, it'll be an interesting one. I mean, Cairo looks really up for it. He's obviously done very well in the FA Cup this season, um, scored two goals to help set up this tie. So lots of narratives for us to enjoy and it should be a, a good cup tie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you know what? One of the coldest games I've ever been at was in the FA Cup. I think I'm doing this again off memory, but when I worked at the paper the first time round, I think I went to the Charlton Dagenham game and it was back in about 2001 and they drew at the Valley um, Dagenham at that time and John Solarco, they were a Premier League side at the time, Charlton mm. and John Solarco scored to take it to a replay and Dagenham were non-league at that time and I can still remember going to the return game and there was a, it was either a temporary stand but it wasn't undercover and it was the coldest I've ever been in my life. I think, and that was in like the January of of two thousand and one. So that's the memory. Whether that's actually what the reality was, but yeah. anyway, <laughs> a little bit of a sidetrack there. I was just one then. I don't know how that makes you feel, Rich. But <laughs> I feel old. I feel old all the time. So <laughs> it's just it's just a standard default setting for me. To be fair, uh, join us back in a second where we'll uh, we'll round this pod off with talking on AFC Wimbledon. Okay, we're going to uh, finish off uh, by looking at Wimbledon. And, um, well, I'm going to start with the interview you've got this week because I thought it was quite an interesting one. Um, mm. ex, well, connections to another one of our clubs, Millwall as well, Ryan Samford, who was released by Millwall in the summer. And yeah. uh, he's now at uh, Wimbledon and basically on a sort of effectively a short-term deal, isn't he, Ed? And you caught up with him this week to talk about his kind of Travise and sort of stress of trying to find a, a football club in the summer. Yeah, we reported back in July that Samford had initially started training with with Wimbledon. It was just really to keep himself fit, keep himself ticking over with the two first choice goalkeepers that they've got there in in uh, Alex Bass and uh, Nick Zanev. But over time, and with Nick Zanev being a New Zealand international, to stop themselves sort of being short in that department, Wimbledon offered. Samford a, a month deal and he admitted to us that he's hoping to extend that because he's absolutely loving his stay at Plough Lane so far. Um, I mean, coming through, you've told me this before, Rich, he was extremely highly rated and obviously Adam Sells, who we had on the podcast last week, knows a lot about goalkeepers, said that when he was in the England squad as a youngster, he was very highly rated. So this was someone who was tipped for really big things, um, someone who was in and around it with the likes of Mason Mount, Trevor Chalaber, the England setup. 
And now he found himself for the first time in his career at 24 without a pro deal and uh, battling to, to try and earn one. He's got one at Wimbledon. He's enjoying it. He wants to stay. He's admitted already that he loves the club. Um, but it's difficult, really. Down the lower leagues, you don't necessarily need the three professional senior goalkeepers. It's not really what they do. You don't usually have three sort of competing for the one spot. When you get to Millwall in the Premier League, you have three senior goalkeepers just to cover yourself. Um, but down the lower leagues, I mean, Wimbledon, interestingly enough, released their sort of young and up-and-coming goalkeeper over the summer, the one who was sort of the next in line in Harry Griffiths, who went to, to Nottingham Forest. But um, yeah, Sanford's come in, wants to stay. I think he might get a chance at some stage, maybe in the EFL Cup game against Palace on Tuesday night, perhaps, if Nick starts the game uh, on Saturday in the FA Cup. So yeah, he was a really interesting character, very, very nice bloke. And um he admitted openly, really, that it, his career probably hasn't gone the way that, that many thought it has, but that's football. And, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's trying to, to get himself some first-team minutes at some stage. Yeah, it's difficult for goalkeepers, I think, because, as we know, only one tends to play. You know, you know it's going to be difficult sometimes to get those matches chained together. And I think I think at Ryan, Ryan's age, sort of 24 now, you just, I think, when you look at his matches, he's only really played in the National League and National League mm. South and uh, really needs to probably start getting some games under his belt, particularly that, as he drops down. That's what he admitted. I think he was, he's, well, I don't really want to give too much away without everyone reading the piece, but he says when he looks back at that time when he was coming through and, it, and highly rated, what, what was the plan for Ryan? You know, the loans that he has had in his career, They've been really short, short, sharp stints, basically of ten games maximum. I think it was at, at Maid, Maid, Maidenstone, Maidstone, at Maidstone. Sorry, and um, apart from that, he's never really had a consistent run of a first choice, first team minutes playing. Um, and at his age, Selzy was talking last week about the two hundred games for a goalkeeper. That's when you're sort of in and around it and ready to to kick on. Samford as a handful of appearances. So um, you hope it works out for him because he wears his heart on his sleeve and, and is a really, really, really nice character. So yeah, lots to uh, lots to like about him. And the other stuff that we've uh, got in the paper as well is a bit of a transfer line and that's on Ali Al-Hamadi. And it's, it's, it's basically talk of championship interest or not talk. You've, you've, you, you know that Leeds United are one of the clubs that are, uh, looking at him. I mean, he's yeah. he's going to be a player that's going to attract interest, isn't he? What more can you add on that? Yeah, we've we've done in this week's paper that Leeds are keeping tabs on on, on Ali. Um, yet to be seen whether that move will happen in January or the summer. The way I look at it is that he'll be off in January for the Asia Cup. So that makes a move probably quite difficult unless it's done in the first sort of 12 days before, before the Cup starts. So he'll be gone for a large part of the the January window. Um, in January, you'll have 18 months. At the end of the season, you'll have a year left to go. And that's when you think Wimbledon might start to look at, at selling their prize asset. And if you look at it to last season, letting Ayuba Sal go in January, it didn't admit defeat, but it was a sign of, of perhaps throwing away the, the good foundations that they built before the, uh, the January window and then their season fell apart. The worst thing they could possibly do is have a repeat of that with a much better squad that they've got this time around. Um, I think we can also say that Wimbledon uh, will be looking, if they do so, uh, Hamadi, uh, to break the the record transfer fee received in the Phoenix era, which is the 1.2 million they received from Qatari side Al, Al Acra over last January um, for Ayo Basal. Um, and f- quite frankly, Ali probably goes for more than that because of the goals that he scored since coming to, to Plough Lane. He's been a sensation. I think I wrote in one of my match reports that it reminded me almost of like Beatlemania or like the fandom of when he came onto the pitch that the fans were just screaming because they wanted to get a glimpse of this, this star player that they've got. Um, I think he works along better alongside Omar Bagel. Uh, and yeah, he's, he's done well this season. The goals haven't perhaps flowed as naturally as they did last year, but it's a different team and a different setup. And He's had two assists in his last two outings. He's still getting goal contributions, scored his first EFL hat-trick. So, yeah, there's lots to like about him. And it's no surprise that Leeds have been watching him and even teams like Sunderland have been linked to him in the not-too-distant past. 
Do you think in terms of the weekend, um, FA Cup action for Wimbledon as well against uh, Cheltenham, do you think, obviously we talked about Charlton, whether they might, uh, you know, Michael Appleton might shuffle his pack a little bit. What about Johnny Jackson? What are you kind of envisaging that he might do? I think he might have to shuffle it because in the last two outings they conceded eight goals and, and suffered back-to-back defeats for the first time this season. So it hasn't necessarily been uh, the best of AFC Wimbledon in their past two league two outings. So this might give the chance to the likes of James Ball, Charlie Lakin on loan from Burton until January, who hasn't really had a chance since Jake Reeves and Armani Little came back. It would give these sort of fringe players just on the outskirts of the team a chance to really claim their their starting spot. Even someone like Josh Davison, um, who has probably had to play a bit more of a reserve backup role than he would have probably liked after the campaign he had last year. Someone like Hussein Biller can get more minutes. He's been coming on in drips and drabs in the past few outings, but this could be his first start of the season. Um, so I think it gives, it gives Jackson the FA Cup an opportunity to take a look at these players who are maybe on the Monday morning after you suffer a heavy defeat are saying, boss, why aren't you picking me? I can offer something different to this team. So I'd, I'd like to see a change in formation, actually. I think they've been overrun in, in certain areas playing the 4-4-2. I noticed that against Atkinson Stanley on uh, Tuesday, a few Tuesdays ago. And uh, I think it might be time for a change in formation just to try and freshen things up. We're now going to bring an end to episode three of the South London Press Football Pods. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any questions over the course of the week, please feel free to, jo- uh, to tweet Rich or myself. Rich, thank you for joining me again. No problems. And like, yeah, as you said, any feedback, welcome. Um, any criticism will be absolutely raging. So yeah. just keep it nice and positive. Just say we're doing great and, and there'll be no problems. Thank you very much for joining us and speak soon.